Hello and welcome to another awesome episode of The Lewis and Kyle Show, a podcast featuring conversations with fascinating entrepreneurs, investors, and subject matter experts in a variety of industries. Today, Kyle and I have the absolute pleasure of sitting down with Sean O'Dowd. Sean is a freelancer and independent consultant who made over $500,000 in his first 12 months of freelancing, which is incredible. Sean also has grown very, very quickly on Twitter and YouTube, which we talk about, of course, in this conversation. Prior to striking out on his own as an independent consultant, Sean worked at Boston Consulting Group and graduated from the Wharton Business School. This conversation discusses how Sean got to $500,000 in freelance income so quickly, why he was motivated to do so in the first place, and how that related to getting married. We discuss the platforms he uses to find freelancing gigs. We discuss his strategy for growing on Twitter, his strategy for investing in real estate, and his strategy for growing on YouTube. It was an extremely value-packed conversation. I am pumped for you to listen to it. So without further ado, I'm going to switch over to this conversation with Sean O'Dowd right now. Enjoy. Sean, welcome to The Lewis and Kyle Show. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. So my first question is, how does a fresh Wharton grad, Boston Consulting Group, the tip of the spear in terms of like technologically advanced mind go out and put a ton of debt on a, a engagement ring. What was going through your mind? How did you, how did you come to that decision? You know, it's, it's a funny story. And the, like the, the punchline could be uh, the things you do for love or something like that. Um, but the, the actual story is I'm in Chicago. So there's a, there's a really big Tiffany store on Michigan Ave in Chicago. It was about a five minute walk from where I lived and was like, all right, well, I know I'm going to propose to uh, the woman who's now my wife. I'm going to go check it out. So, um, walked in, met a really nice lady named Bonnie who showed me everything they had. And one of the things that Bonnie had to show me was a ring that they made. And to my knowledge, I'm the only person who makes this exact style of ring. Um, it's one center stone with two pear-shaped diamonds next to it. My wife's name is Pear. So when I saw that and Bonnie showed this to me, I was like, this was meant to be. I have to do it. My, her name's Pear. Her ring's going to have uh, pear stones on it. And said, okay, do it. And she's like, all right, this is the price. And I said, okay, great, let's do it. <laughs> And she's like, do you have this on cash or do you want to get a check? And I was like, I don't have that. And they're like, well, we do have this awesome financing option for you. And next thing I knew, I was uh, signing on the papers for this finance ring, which was meant to be, but just an absolute ton of money. But like you went to school and learned about debt and how and how bad per, you know you've been on YouTube before like I guess <laughs> you know it is for love but what was the payment forty five hundred dollars every two weeks? Uh, yeah, that was that's about right. Um, that was after a uh, sizable down payment as well. Wow, I mean. Respect. And we're just not sharing this episode with uh, Kyle's girlfriend is the moral of the story. This one may not be on Instagram. (laughs) I definitely hope she's not listening because I will, I hope to avoid it, but it turned into something really good for you. So let's talk about how it turned into your motivation and what you did with that motivation just briefly. And then we can jump into some more uh, high level stuff. Yeah. So 
I signed on the dotted line. They were moving the ring size to make it smaller for my, my wife's tiny finger. And I felt really good for about two weeks. And then that first payment uh, request came through and was like, oh, I really need to make a lot of money very quickly. And I, I've been very fortunate to have had a really good salary with my prior job. I was had left that prior job and now working at a startup was high on equity, low on, on cash. So I was like, hey, I got to start doing something. So I just started kind of flowing around. Like, what is something that I can do that I know I can make money today? And is not going to be so obvious that my girlfriend at the time is like, why are you going out to go power wash someone's driveway? And me suddenly we need to have a really good cover story for why I was trying to hustle to make money. So for me, that was Upwork because I knew I could get started today. I knew I could make money today. Um, and I knew I could do it at night when my girlfriend was sleeping or when she was at work. So that's what I did. I went on Upwork. Um figured out a, a strategy to start getting projects. My first one was was proofreading an email. And it just kind of expanded out from there where I went from literally proofreading an email to a year later having paid off the ring, um, my independent consulting business um, that, was, that was extremely profitable and remains to to this day. So let's dive into, I mean, there's so many different pieces of the story we can address. Uh, let's start like fast forwarding today a little bit. What are the main services that you're providing to a company, right? I say I'm a consultant and I'm doing data analytics, consulting, and more or less, a lot of the times I'm actually just more of a software engineer that's just on a contract basis. What are are you doing for companies most often, like or like categories of things? Yeah. So um, my work really fits across three different pillars. Um, pillar number one, which is a 40, 50% of the work is for private equity firm almost exclusively after they've acquired a company. Um, private equity firm buys a company, they want to sell it in a couple of years for more money. Um, there's a lot of changes they want to make to the company to be able to do that, be able to sell it for more. They'll have a big, they call it a value creation team that's working to create value in the company and make it worth more money. Um, they'll typically bring me on to help lead one aspect of that value creation. It could depend on what the company is, what they're trying to do, what the strategy is for that company. But um, I'll be doing something involved with leading value creation for, for the private equity firm. So that's number one. Um, number two, this is what I'm doing now, working for like a Fortune 500 company that has some need for a strategy to do something. They think there's an opportunity that could be bigger than what it is today, and they want to figure out how they actually do that. So they'll bring me on for that. That's call it 30, 40% of my work. The last bit is for startups. It's typically something in the like series C range. And it's typically board mandated work where they're getting the investors and board are getting a little hazy on whether or not the mission still makes sense. The product market fit is there. So they'll bring me in very similarly to say the private equity work and say, does this actually make sense what we're doing? Is there a better way? Should we even be trying to fix this company or cut our losses? Um, so those are really kind of the three different pillars of work that I do. Vast majority of it is either private equity or Fortune 500. So are you still doing any of the um, Upwork like odd jobs here or there? Or have you moved fully from from like Upwork to, I think it's called Catalan, or maybe there's another um, consulting platform that you work off of? And what percentage of your revenue comes from those like consulting platforms? Yeah. 
So I, I'm no longer on Upwork, no longer doing the, the odd jobs in the email. I think Upwork is great for a lot of reasons. I think if you succeed in Upwork, do it six months or so, and then you move up to those higher level platforms. You mentioned one of them, which is Catalent. That's my favorite. And that's where I've historically found a lot of my work. Um, but in terms of what that looks like today, uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of like 60 to 70% of my work is coming from Catalent or platforms like Catalent mostly Catalan. Um, the rest of it is people who are, are independently reaching out to me directly, um, asking for help with one particular thing or another. What was that jump like for you in terms of, did you just reach a ceiling on Upwork or you started finding, like, what kind of motivated, you're like, okay, I've kind of, I need to switch, I need to do something bigger, I need to do something better, or like, I can do something bigger and better? Um, it's a great question because it was a recognition of where I was at and, and where consulting could be. So I was doing those odd projects. They were lasting no more than a week. And it was very task focused, like build me an Excel model, build me a PowerPoint, build me something that I, I could do very quickly and then just kind of move on to the next. However, I had consulting experience. I knew consulting projects are not just those little task-based things. They're six, 12, um, 16 week long engagements with a discrete beginning, middle and end, lots of different deliverables, lots of different questions that are trying to be answered. So I, I knew there had to be something more from what I was doing. And uh, it was actually funny. Um, Mark Cuban is an investor in Catalan. He came um, to Wharton when I was at school there. He like went out drinking in the bars with us after he gave a speech in one of the classrooms, and like he mentioned the platform. Um, so I heard about it like years ago when I was at school from Mark Cuban, um, and I was like, I'm doing my Upwork stuff, and it, it just popped in my head. I was like I should go check out this catalog thing and see if that can be the the more. Um, uh, that's more consulting focused rather than just say task focused like Upwork was. That's crazy background story. Kyle, what are you going to say? Um, so I've been looking, I watched your video about how to make $250 today on Upwork, which I love, by the way. I think that you're a very good teacher and I want to get into why teaching is your favorite thing to do. But um, what skills do you think like a layman should pick up in order to be able to pick up these odd jobs that take a week or a day on Upwork in order to be able to capitalize on that $250 a day thing? Yeah. Uh, it, so I think what's great about Upwork is just about every single skill that you could have, there's somebody who's looking to hire that. Like if you know Excel, there's somebody who's looking to hire you for it. If you know a design, there's someone looking to hire you that. If you know how to Google things, there's someone who's looking to hire someone to do research and, and virtual assistant work. Um, there's going to be a job that's a good fit for you. I think the skill that people need is uh, almost needing to get out of their own way. What I mean by that is, I've seen a lot of people kind of push back on my Upwork thing and they're like, you know what? Like, I, I think I'm too good to do that kind of project. That's that works beneath me. I'm not going to do something like that. Like I graduated from the number one business school in the world. Like I joined Upwork and the first thing I did was proofread someone's email. Like you need to have that the belief of like, you're not too good to be doing something because 
honestly, that's how you break out on Upwork is you take those smaller projects that might not be seen super duper interesting, but you do a couple of those, you build up some five-star reviews, and then suddenly you're a candidate for those $200 an hour type projects. So kind of getting out of your own way and, and being being willing to kind of take on those jobs is really the key to breaking out and getting to those higher level projects. And then once you're ready, there's, or go ahead. I was going to say, is it a problem where it affects like your average rate if you take on those small jobs just to accumulate ratings? Because I've had some people push back on that and I don't know if that's valid or not. But like if you're trying to get, let's say primarily, let's say $100 an hour, like high level work, like at your main skill, but you just want to like beef up your profile and you're like, yeah, I'll proofread your email for 10 bucks. I don't care that it takes an hour. I just, the, the, the five-star review is worth an hour to me. So I don't care. But like, then it shows, you know, okay, I'll earn a thousand dollars across twenty projects. It's like this person's gonna expect to pay me fifty dollars for my actual expertise. Yeah, it's a great question. It's not an issue that I run into uh, or I ran into. Um, the reason why is because your review scores are universal. So you don't have like a five star review score for your small projects and then like no reviews for a bigger project. Like you're a five star candidate across the board no matter what. So that's one. Number two is Upwork actually does have functionality for you. Once you get those high reviews, you can hide the amount of money that you've made on a particular project. So if you do a couple small projects, you make $10, you get your five-star reviews, you now have the ability to hide that amount. So uh, in a way, the, the client would never even know that you were a, a, in the back in the day doing projects for a really low dollar amount figure. That's good to know that that's an unfounded fear. Yeah. Uh, do you do cold prospecting? I know you have one video and I really like this video and I'm needing to execute on it. So I've been doing some resume work, but applying for contract positions on LinkedIn is like another kind of, let's call it like under traffic's channel. Well, Upwork, I wouldn't know, don't know if that's really an under traffic channel or if the key is like the, I don't know if this was your tweet mm -hmm. or someone else's, but like the sauce there, and I use the word sauce so much these days, and it's kind of annoying to me even, <laughs> but is that using an RSS feed to Slack for notification for like matching searches. I don't know if that was you or someone else who I picked that up on, but that's like tripled our reply rate being like the very mm -hmm. first or second to apply by getting a notification. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to like put that out there for anyone who's listening to this and may have missed that tip that that's definitely get instant notifications for jobs that match your ideal search. But the LinkedIn strategy, uh, is that have you found that that I guess two parts is agnostic in terms of the type of skill like it doesn't really matter uh, those consulting jobs and then also like that involves like a cold email specifically like your pitch is like and find the recruiter and pitch them with a cold email do you have any other I would call it like an outbound channel where you're like doing something besides just applying to the job in a platform. Uh Good question. So the, the LinkedIn strategy is an awesome one because nobody knows about it and it's shooting fish in a barrel. It's super straightforward. You are, um, the jobs pay more and there is less competition for those contract positions. So I've got, a, I've got a whole video that talks about exactly how to do this. Um, actually it's funny. My, my best friend, since I was in third grade, called me this morning telling me that he saw my video and he tried it himself and he got a, uh, a contract gig on literally the first one that he did, um, which was kind of a cool thing because I was in the Audi dealership waiting for my car to get fixed uh, and, and got a call from my friend telling me about that story. To answer your question though, 
the LinkedIn is the only I'll call it like cold, cold outbound strategy. I've been I've been fortunate to have a lot of my work be inbound through the platforms. And I truly do mean inbound. The reason why is on those more higher level platforms like the Catalans of the world, it is in those cl- um, platforms' best interest to, to make sure that their clients who are Fortune 500 companies, who are private equity firms, are really happy with the level of consultant that they're matched with. So because I've done well on those platforms and because I've gotten five-star reviews on those platforms, those platforms, say the Catalans of the world, actually will call me before a project even gets posted live on the platform to the public and say, hey, Sean, we've got something interesting. Can I get you on the phone with a client to talk to them about it? And in that point, I am I am the first person to, they speak with, and I don't have to set up an RSS feed, although that is a great tip, because the platform is literally kind of doing it for me. These are the aspirations for the freelancers out there. Why uh, have you, and maybe you have and you just don't talk about it much, but not try to like spin up your own, like more than just your own labor? Like, cause that's a bottleneck on the amount of money you can make is how much Sean can work in a day. Uh, have, it seems like you've, you know, to some extent solved the problem of like finding a decent volume of decent projects. Uh, is there a reason that's not been kind of like your next step, like building a team and... So uh, it's a it's a good question. So I have a I've got a bench of close to twenty different freelancers um, hired through Upwork who work for me in very specific tasks and very specific niches. For example, I've got like a great Excel guy, so I'm doing something that needs Excel, like he's doing it. If I need PowerPoint slides, I've got a great PowerPoint guy, like he's doing the PowerPoints. I've got a great researcher, if I need research, he's doing it. So I, I do have a pretty deep bench which has enabled me to take on more projects than I, I would have been able to do by myself by, by quite a large margin. I have not taken the step of, uh, we'll call it formalizing and hiring a, a full-time employee to help grow out the business from there. Um, I know a lot of people who have tried that and this model lends itself really well to like one solo individual with freelance support um, once you try hiring individuals behind you, the margins on consulting go from like 97% to like 10%, uh, which if your goal is to build a 20, 30, 40 person consulting firm and try to sell it, like you can stomach those low margins. If that's not your goal to build and sell a consulting firm, then you want to keep it yourself and keep those margins up as high as you possibly can. I want to ask a couple more freelance questions, then we'll go more like Twitter, YouTube, real estate broadly, if that's good with you, Kyle. And uh, I'm thinking, uh, yeah, I had the question right here. So we we talked about kind of like ego and like, oh, I'm too good for that. What are some other mistakes you see a lot of people trying to do this like independent freelancer like model just making? Because it seems like you've been doing really well at it. Maybe mistakes even that you made early on that you've since corrected. Yeah. One one that I see all the time, and I I hire on Upwork a lot myself now. For again, that I've got a very large subcontracting specific parts of a project or something, right? Yeah. Um, so it, I, it's interesting because I I see this these mistakes being made to me when people are pitching to me when uh, I'm posting jobs on Upwork. Um, a lot of freelancers and a lot of consultants are very me focused rather than client focused. At the end of the day, the client doesn't care who you are, where you went to school, 
what your experience level is and how great your mom thinks you are. Like the client cares about like two things. Do you understand what they need done and can you do what they need done? So what a lot of freelancers do is they see a project on Upwork, for example, and they go, hi, Joe Schmo. I'm the greatest at XYZ thing. Here's all these companies that I've worked for. I can do an amazing job. Hire me, hire me, hire me. And Joe Schmo is like, got 12 of those pitches and it's really hard to distinguish yourself and for Joe Schmo to decide who to hire in that situation because they're all the exact same. The freelancers who really succeed are very client focused. It's This is like straight out of the Jeff Bezos, Amazon, like customer focused playbook. The freelancers who succeed are the ones who put themselves in the client's shoes and they go, hi, Joe Schmo, you asked in your description for XYZ tasks to be done. My guess is you're asking for that task to be done because you need XYZ thing. You probably need XYZ thing because of ABC. And you literally just like spell out what you think their business problem is. And you're probably going to be right on what that is based off of the context they've given you in the description of the job anyways. But then you talk about like, because of all these things, this is how what I think you need and what I think you need to fix it. Here's how I would approach doing so. Now, Joe Shimo is looking at that and he goes, wow, like this freelancer really understands why my situation, what I'm looking for. Who do I hire? The person who understands me and understands what I'm looking for or the 12 generic random guys who are talking about how they're, they're the greatest thing in the world. Like it's very, very, very easy for the to, to make the right decision in that case. So as a freelancer, client focus, customer focus, thinking about how you can tailor everything to what that customer actually truly needs and what they're actually thinking about is the really big unlock and some big mistake that a lot of people are making. Yeah, I'm just hiding my face, looking at some of the proposals that I wrote out this morning on Upwork. Making that mistake pretty explicitly. I am God's gift to Airtable. <laughs> I... <laughs> Uh, you know, I thought that one would convert, but, you know, just that <laughs> strong opening line. But Kyle, you look cute up as well. Um, if you have more questions on the freelancing yeah, stuff, yeah. we can continue down that line. I I want to shift. We can to just bring all, eventually and talk let's, to you. Let's about. loop them up in the bonus in the bonus time. See, I don't know. I think SFRs and A plus neighborhoods is is really interesting. Uh, I'm saying let's loop up the extra freelance questions at the end. So okay, okay, I got what you're yeah. saying. So, Sean, as somebody who graduated from the number one business school in the world, who has made a lot of money doing consulting for Fortune 500 companies, you've decided that the way that you want to build your own personal wealth is in single family homes. Can you walk us through that decision, specifically single family homes, and then why you think it's worth it to pay whatever multiple on the bricks to be in the correct location, the correct um, A plus school zone. Yeah. So there's two decisions that were made. Number one is to go heavy into real estate. And then number two, what kind of real estate that we want to go into. Um, so on the first one, the idea of going heavy into the real estate, that was always something that I, I planned to do. I moved a lot growing up. So got to see the like choosing a house process quite a bit. Um, so it was just something that I was, I was excited about. I was passionate about same with my wife. She was always something she was interested in doing. Um, the, how, where to, what to buy, what type of property to buy 
we were completely open to the, a lot of different things. So I did what a lot of people did. I went online. I was on bigger pockets. Um, I got suckered into the idea of buying a multifamily property out of state. And we bought two in about a year period. And we were under contract on about two or three more. And we got absolutely creamed on all of them. Um, I am uh, very negative on the idea of the out-of-state multifamily properties, which we can talk about if it's interesting. But it's an area that gets a lot of hype and just it, the hype is not uh, born in any reality in the numbers. So we got out of those properties. We got out of them and it was not for us. But we knew we really did want to stay in the real estate space. So that came down to where where can we put our money that we feel really good about? And again, we put the customer lens on this here. We said, what is what is the ideal tenant for us and what does that look like? And it was a tenant that is going to stay in the property for a very long time. It's a tenant who's going to pay a high rental price to be in that property. So I said, okay, like what is the property that actually will enable that? And that is a single family house in a really, really stellar school district. Like so many people are buying apartment buildings. Apartment buildings are mostly studio one, maybe two bedroom units. Who stays in a one or two bedroom unit? It's typically people who are a little younger. They're going to be more transient. They're going to move every year or so. I did when I was younger and still living in a one bedroom apartment. But if we're talking about a house, we're talking about a house with three, four, five bedrooms, unless that's next to a college and it's a frat house, the only people who are going to be interested in a three, four, five bedroom house are people with families and kids. And speaking as a dad myself, like people with kids really care about being in an area with a great school district. So they're going to pay a premium to be in the best school district and they're going to stay for a lot of years so their kids can go all the way through that school district. So putting all of that on the table and thinking about that, we said like we're going to find the absolute, absolute best school district in our area. And we're going to get really, really good at that market. We're going to know that market better than anyone else. And we're going to start buying homes and renting them out once we get them. So that's that's what we did. And that's what we have been doing in the real estate game for us. So I'm a multifamily broker. I sell um, apartment complexes to out-of-state investors. Oh, sorry about that. <laughs> no, what, uh, what size uh, deals did you buy and where were they? So we bought a six, a seven unit in Iowa in the Moline area, um, and then we bought a six unit in Wisconsin, like middle of Wisconsin, Wausau area, and then we were under contract on a couple of others in basically Midwest areas, roughly fifty to one hundred thousand people in the in the town. It's hard to make the smaller deals like that work, especially when you, you've got that eight and a half percent management fee or whatever. Yep. Yeah. Very no, much I, so. I understand for sure. We sell, you know, 50 plus unit deals, some totally stuff, different ball game there. stuff that's totally smaller, but, um, but yeah, so I, I understand exactly what you're saying. I think, you know, it, it goes to show why you're successful with consulting the way that you think about these different things and your answers to these questions is interesting to me. Um, the way that you broke down, you know, who lives here, like, and I, I really like the Jeff Bezos sort of like, um, what's the word sauce, maybe, 
<laughs> you know, the the customer centric thinking here, I think, is, is is I'm learning from you to think like that. So, how many of these single family homes do you have, and what's the? Maybe you don't want to talk about your personal portfolio, but like just general sort of like deal size. How are you purchasing them? Are you purchasing them with leverage or and and so forth and so on? Yeah. So um, uh, happy to run through all the numbers. So our average purchase price is four thirty six for a property. We're buying them um, uh, leveraged, twenty percent down typically. Um, twenty to twenty five is what we do. Uh, we're putting them on 20 year notes when we buy them fixed. And, uh, what's because it's the school district that they're in, they rent for anywhere between 20 to 50% more than what the exact same house would rent for a mile over in the other school district. So what's great about these properties is they're, they're true class A properties, really, 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 really high quality units. So Maintenance is non-existent. Or if we do get maintenance, it's it's extremely nominal. Are you self-managing? Uh, so we're self-managing. Yeah. Um, quasi self-managing. We use a software called Hemlane, which we love, which uh, allows us to do self-management. But they have like a twenty-four-seven like maintenance team on call. So if something goes wrong, like tenants go to Hemlane, and then Hemlane will like find the plumber and send them out. So we don't do anything except just like look at the numbers, but it, it, we can self-manage because these properties, 100% of our portfolio is on a three-year lease. So renting them out ourselves is very easy because it's something that I only need to do once every three years. And do you have a step up uh, basis or is it the same? Each we do. Year? Okay. We do. Um, so it, it goes up every year. The maintenance is low. And because we're talking about our, so our average uh, our average property rents for a touch under thirty eight hundred a month, um, wow. because we're talking about about a, a pretty high end price, our our tenants are software engineers and equivalent um, professions. Actually, one of our tenants is a landlord landlord herself and owns a couple properties, and she's renting so she can keep her own capital so she can go out and buy buy more properties for herself. Sweet. I think um, those are good numbers. 3,800. So is this like a, a very specific small area or how big of a, of a school district is this? Because like it's, that seems like a pretty high uh, rent to price ratio, especially for a class A neighborhood. So did you like go out and seek this out and find it and like you found like your nugget here or? Um. So it's a, uh, it's a good question. We it ended up working out really well for us because we're parents. So we had done the exact same calculus ourselves of like what's the best place, um, what's the best place to live, and uh, where should we be living for our kids. Um, so we had actually independently decided like this is the town that we wanted to live in. Um, so we just came here and then bought a property. Um, and what's been really interesting about this is I've been sharing the strategy more and more with, on Twitter. I've been hearing from a lot of people who've been DMing me who are like, hey, I live in the best high school district in Indiana. Like, this has been my strategy for the past decade and nobody knows about it. But there's a huge, huge, huge population of people who want to rent a class A property, who want to rent a class A home 
for whatever reason it might be. And there's typically isn't a lot of product available for them. So you can get it in and these things cash flow like crazy because there's just not a lot of options. The price is quite high and the tenants are willing to pay that price. This is a little out of my depth right now. I'm just in a, I'm, I'm the single dude in I'm his there. early, I'm, early, uh, I'm, I'm the single dude in his early twenties buying between apartments and don't know what city I want to live in yet. Uh, so we'll check <laughs> back in if this is a good strategy five years from now. And if I'm stationary and have children, but sounds, sounds better like than it. Bitcoin, at least in the past two years. Uh, well, two years, I got to yeah, watch my numbers I, here. Two years, September, 2021. No, it's January 2021. I don't know where Bitcoin was January 2021. I think it was like 30s. So yeah, down 50%. So anyway, uh, uh, those are my quick maths. Uh, everyone was doing quick math, so I had to join in, <laughs> join in the quick math party. But you uh, you mentioned sharing the strategy on Twitter. When did you get on Twitter? Uh, how intentional were you from the start that like this was not just like a casual thing? Unless you just managed to get to where you are casually. That would be pretty remarkable. But... Uh, <laughs> and what's like your growth journey been there in terms of like strategy and is it, like a cadence you have set for yourself? Like, yeah. So it's, it, I got on Twitter, I want to say like two years ago, two and a half years ago. And I was just like random guy on Twitter. Like it was, it was nothing. Um, I was just following people who were interesting to me and, when they would say something interesting, I would reply back and uh, hopefully we'd have an interesting conversation. And it was like that for a long, long time. And then it, it slowly started to kind of grow. I wasn't being intentional about it either way. There was a period of time where people were like trying to tag smaller accounts. You see it every once in a while. And they're like, um, here's the like three smartest people who are underfollowed on Twitter, or here are like the best account under 500 followers on Twitter. And people kept on mentioning me in those things, which was super nice and very kind of people to do so. But that started kind of getting a little bit more interest and a couple more followers and, and so on and so forth. And then from there, I said, okay, like this is, this is kind of fun. I'm going to start sharing some more thoughts about what, what we do not in a very intentional way. I wasn't trying to grow a following or anything like that up until I would say maybe three, four, five months ago. I was like, okay, like this is kind of fun. Like why not? So I, I did one thread basically on how I sell $100,000 consulting projects. And that got me like five, 6,000 followers in like 48 hours it's like, wow, okay, like there's there's something that was interesting to this. Like, number one, hopefully this thread added a lot of value to people. Um, but number two, people seem more interested in coming back for more and wanting to learn more. So I'm gonna try to do what I can to deliver on that promise and and share more content. So I started kind of scheduling some tweets and, and saying more, I try to engage with more people. And it's been kind of this really interesting, interesting journey where the the Twitter account went from 2000 followers maybe six seven eight months ago to like twenty thousand right now do you have a digital product that you're selling yet i don't know i think that that could be huge for you it's it's interesting um i've had i've had a lot of people dm me and ask like 
hey, do you have a course? Do you have an ebook where I can learn more about a specific strategy that I'm talking about, whether it's the consulting, whether it's the real estate? Um, and the, the short answer is I don't have anything for those people right now. Um, so I, I spend a lot of time in my DMs and I hope saying this is not going to like crush my schedule more, but like I get a lot of messages and I respond to 99% of them. And I try to try to answer people's questions because I don't have anything else to be sending people to right now. It's really just the Twitter and the YouTube videos. So you set like up a whole meet Kevin offer where they'll help. Yeah, I was, uh, that's what I was thinking. Orbit yeah. metrics and Kyle Bishop will win, win. Um, but, my best performing tweet, like within the past two weeks, was there's a Dickie Bush tweet, or not a Dickie Bush tweet, a Dickie Bush video, if you follow Dickie, where he talks about, you know, how to generate it, it's his 4A framework for like how he generates content ideas. And all I did was just screenshot the video and tag him and just a quote from the video. And that got like 100 likes or whatever, which for me is a good performing tweet, at least in my size. But he, that's awesome, at least for now. But the, uh, the quote in the, thank you, the quote in the tweet was like, People, oh goodness, I, I, this, this would be so much easier if I just pulled it up, but it's like, people don't pay for information, people pay for, right, like packaging, speed, accountability, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, I feel like there's nothing you're holding back, right? There's no like ebook that's going to reveal like the seventh, it's like you're giving us six out of seven steps of your, I feel like you're giving us everything. Like, no, they've been like an open book with the strategies. So it's like for you, like with this ebook or with the, some course, it's like, People are literally asking you to, to to package something that you've already said on your YouTube channel in a long form video, step by step, literally screen sharing the steps, and you've step by step and thread. But people still want to pay for it because it's like they just want to like to go through the the accountability of purchasing something or having something sequenced or just like slightly more organized for them is worth like that fifty, a hundred, thousand bucks depending on however you package the product. But that's that was a really good quote i thought it was like people because there's no information you're hiding in any of your content at least that i can see maybe like you know someone gets into your private mastermind you like show them like an address or something specific i don't know but like there's nothing you could also just make it free back. and collect email addresses and then just send that those email addresses your new youtube videos or whatever just for the sake of growing the things that you're uh, already doing but you know you already make a lot of money so I don't know if it's <laughs> something on top of your mind. I guess that yeah, would be a good question. That, I, Secondarily, go ahead. Or, so go ahead, go ahead. Uh, oh, I was just going to say, like, you can say what you're, like, you're about to say, but, like, I'm curious what the kind of next set of, like, intentions, goals, et cetera, are if there is, like, a specific... I know YouTube's a huge focus, and I don't know how much, like, an email list reinforces YouTube or not, but, so, yeah, speaking to, like, the, the general yeah. 2023 outlook, let's say. Yeah, it's, um, it, it, it's a good, good question. And like, I, I agree with you guys. There's a lot of, there's a lot of value that, uh, could be created by, by digital project, uh, products and, um, number one for, for the customers. Cause again, I'm, I'm very customer focused, but number two, like it, it could be a revenue stream. That being said, I, uh, I have, I'm quite fortunate to make quite a lot of money in my twenties. I have a pretty sizable rental portfolio and my return on invested capital is north of 15% in every one of my properties. Um, so like I, I don't need the money, which is nice because I don't need to uh, monetize anything too early. Uh, I've seen a couple of people on Twitter 
there's one in particular that's coming to mind actually that has tried too hard to like throw a gumroad link into their into their tweets um and, and to, to monetize things too early and i I think it alienates their audience and I think they they stop growing their account as a result because they're they get labeled. They're another they're another course person. They're not someone who's actually trying to sort of share and get value. But because I don't need the revenue from the courses right now, I think I can I can take my time and, and use Twitter to really just kind of be an open book and share everything that I can share. Same with YouTube. And I'm going to spend a lot of time in 2023 trying to grow both of them, YouTube in particular. Um, I'm going to I'm gonna be publishing a video every single day, um, seven days a week for the entirety of 2023, um, which is going to be an absolute ton of work. But like, I don't need to monetize those just yet. So I'm going to I'm going to focus on I'm kind of growing the growing the pie before before kind of doing anything that could be monetized, whatever that monetization could look like. That's, that's something to figure out after, after focusing on what I'm doing right now. Who are your role models on YouTube right now? I know Graham Stephan's a big one. Uh, maybe at least there's some, some tropes, if that's the right word on the channel and some like kind of inspiration, but who else is like, you're like inspired you to be like, I want to do YouTube because this person did YouTube and I learned a lot or just, love what they're doing and want to be emulate aspects. Of yeah. This. So I, so what I did, um, there's a couple that come to mind, Charlie Chang and Brian John um, and Graham Stephan are the three that come to mind. Um, the reason why those three come to mind is they were all profiled by um, a major publication. Uh, Andre Jick, sorry, is another one. So those come to mind because they were all profiled by by a major publication about how much they were making on YouTube. Um, I've actually I've actually been in talks with that publication about doing an article about me and how much I'm making from the consulting, and they wanted like tax returns basically to verify that I am making the, the amount that I make. So for that reason, I am very confident that they asked those guys the exact same question, and they verified. Which they means they legitimately make as much money as they say they're making. Correct. Exactly. So I, I basically was like data nerd consultant on all of that. So I, I went to those articles the day that they were published and got the numbers off of what they were making. And then I ran Phantom Buster and a couple of different scrapers through their YouTube channel and basically scraped all of the data off of their channels going back to the day they started their channel. And it gave me a pretty sizable data set. And I've basically just been reverse engineering everything that they've done. <laughs> Kyle's face because I know right it now. Works. Sorry, if you're if you're not on YouTube right now, you're just missing <laughs> out because Kyle's just like melting at this strategy. He's having so much fun listening to this. Yeah. So um, we'll call them the role models because their their framework has been the basis for everything that I've done. And I have a I've got a very large Excel that is is kind of tearing apart what they've done into like a, a lot of different data points. And there's a very, 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 very clear pattern that I was able to come up with. And I, I looked across a lot of data points. I, I cut um, the words per minute they were speaking based off of what point in the video, like all sort of it, and just basically reverse engineered it. And I, I could be proven wrong. I'm still relatively small on YouTube. But I'm confident that if I 
basically published throughout consistently through 2023 and following their blueprint, I'll be able to reach a, a certain level of YouTube through YouTube success, which in this case, I guess is subscribers, view count, whatever you want to call it. Holy shit, Batman. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Are you doing your own editing? (laughs) (laughs) At this point in time? You're you're editing. I'm sorry, what was editing? Um, So I am not doing the editing. Your edits are involved. Mm-hmm. So I, um, I write the, I, I write the scripts. I come up with the concept. Um, I, I film the video and I grab the content that's going to be used in the video. So screenshots, screen recordings, whatever that might be. B-roll sort um, of. Yeah, the B-roll. Exactly. And then I have an editor that I work with. Um, we've been working together now for four five months or so. Um, uh, absolutely fantastic. Um, he, he puts everything together, but it's, it, it's really a true partnership because he's very, very, very good at what he does. And this is a space that he knows really well. He knows way better than me. So he's able to look at the, the way I film something and say, Hey, I've got some feedback for you next time. Do it this way or this time, next time do that. Um, which makes the videos better and we're, we're, we're collectively both getting better. So it's, uh, it's a it's a team effort in terms of how we're doing this. Is he also your thumbnails person? Um, thumbnails is kind of an interesting one. Um, all in, I think I've had from the start four or five different people do thumbnails at different points. So you can it's kind of funny. I can go back through my past videos and see like yeah. he did what thumbnail, what point. He did. He made a lot of the thumbnails that are on the channel. But like I said, I've had like four or five different people who've done them. I've made a lot myself too. Um, so, and those are those are uh, more recent ones. So it's kind of an interesting, interest, interesting thing because there's been a lot of different people who've weighed in on that. But the editing has been consistently with this one individual. Do you have a goal for the number of subscribers at the end of 2023? The goal is one million monthly views by the end of 2023. So is that 12 million total views by the end of the year? Is that you want to have like one month this year with at least a million views? Um, like uh, run rate, basically. So okay. um, December of next, December of 2023, I want to have a million views. Where is it right now? Um, uh, uh, so this one is kind of this is kind of a hard month to answer because there was a big spike, but it's at 50, 58,000 roughly. Something like that. I think you're falling. Um, hopefully, I don't, I'm speaking, you know, without full reason to have confidence in what I'm saying. But hopefully, you're falling like victim to the same, like underestimating your own compounding, being like, "Well, don't count this month. This, you know, this month's at 50k, but don't look count that because it's randomly high for some reason." It's like, I mean, if you're going to publish 200 more videos in the next 200 days, if like you have a lot more opportunities for it to like be randomly high, and whatever video that popped off this month isn't necessarily going to die unless it was just like uh a super timely video instead of a timeless video but yeah i it's kind of you to say and i i think that's right i mean i I, at the end of the day like i'm i'm a consultant i'm a business guy i'm a i'm a i'm a data person so like i've gone back to the beginning from all for six seven eight months ago and i've looked at the number of views that i've gotten every single week 
for six, seven, eight months now. So I've got a lot of data uh, in terms of what the growth rate on a week over week basis is. And it is really, really, really consistently about 20% week over week growth, which is shocking. Like sometimes some weeks it's like 18%, some weeks it's 22%, but it's like, it's basically 20, 20% every single week. And that's been with so, three videos per week instead of seven. Three videos per week. Correct. Um, so I look at that and I go, okay, like, it doesn't sound like anything because like the first week it was 20 views. And then the, the week after that, it was like, what is it? 24 views, whatever it is. Um, so it, it doesn't seem like it's growing, but that growth rate is held and, <laughs> and then start extra, extrapolating. Yeah. Out. Now we're at 2000. Like <laughs> 20% exactly, per month like is a lot per week. Kyle. 20% per week. Oh, per week. Per week. Per month so is a lot too. So <laughs> yeah. So I mean, if if this if this holds, I, ha- I mean, I have it right here. Um, I have a Excel that's built up and it's pulling data in automatically and all that good stuff. But like, if this holds, I'll reach the million um, views a month on, on in October of this year. If it doesn't hold, we'll see what happens. But for now, it, it, I'm on pace to hit it in October. Do you have 300 video ideas or a, a, a confident strategy to have 300 video ideas for the next 300 days? Yeah, so we're doing we so we're doing three long form videos Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and then the other days of the week are going to be shorts. Um, okay. We've we've actually gotten some. Uh, uh, I've gotten shorts to is the where, where I would pr- trust projections the least. In my yes. Opinion. So um, uh, the view the view goal of a million views a month does not include shorts. Okay. Um, sh- we're viewing shorts as an enabler to like get my face in front of people. So when they see a thumbnail with me, they're like, oh, like, I think I've seen that guy, not a like strategy that's going to actually like move the needle. Yeah, I, I feel like it's one of those things where like, is this still working? Like, it's, 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 one, it's not something I would build a business around. It's like, a, let's I, just ex- run, run this till it dies and just be grateful for whatever it provided for us. Very much agree. And shorts yeah. have barely any, if barely any, if any at all, B-roll. Um, and they're about 20 seconds long. So like I filmed our first 10 shorts last Friday, I want to say, and it took me 12 minutes to film wow. all, all 10 shorts. Cause you had an um, editor. Cause so the editor's work. doing it and yeah. the, um, and he's doing the prep, the prep work took, um, 20 minutes max because the shorts are 20 seconds long. So each short writing, writing the words for it was like just a few minutes so it wasn't it wasn't anything crazy what are some unique ways that you've applied your data analytics brain to parenthood if any oh that's a really interesting question interesting question um clever um clever um and I guess now that I've thought about it, I, I don't really have an answer in terms – like I haven't been doing anything analytical from um, uh, like a parenthood perspective. My oldest is two and a half. Um, so we, we spend a lot of time uh, a lot of time together and we do lots of, lots of things together, but nothing that's, that's analytical um, and nothing that's, that's forced where I'm trying to force him to do anything analytical or just letting him, letting him learn at his own pace. 
You didn't track he like he's not wearing some bad he's not, and like he's uh, not wearing an aura ring that kind of thing. Thing. Yeah. Uh I mean I do have the aura ring here. Uh I tracked my sleep when he was okay. growing up. That was terrible. Um I actually got to the point that I stopped looking at it because it was so <laughs> bad. Um but his uh no no tracking for, for him specifically. Um I think you're the youngest person that I've asked this question to, but um you know, so many parents describe this like uh, this like light switch in your brain sort of moment when you have a child. Did that happen to you? Do you um, do you relate to that? Um, I don't think so. Actually, um, I, I I know exactly what you're talking about. I, I've had people describe it to me. Um, I I don't think so. I. And a lot of contexts where I've heard people talk about that, it's people who are like, hey, like I was spending my 20s like partying a lot and doing all sorts of things. And like I had my kid and decided I get my I had to get my act together. I'm not trying to say that like I think I had my act together or anything like that. But I um, when I had a kid, like I already had built a successful business. I wasn't going out partying on weekends like um, my wife and I like. Uh, I still make fun of her for it. Like on the weekends, like she wanted to go into the office to, to work on Saturdays and Sundays. Like we would get up on Saturday morning, go for a run and then go to the office. Um, so like, we weren't like, uh, we were making the most of our time, so to speak. So once we had the kid, it was like, okay, now we're going to make the most of our time as parents rather than like, I need to change myself too, um, to be the kind of like role model responsible person I should be around my kids. That makes a ton of sense. I feel like that's not, I feel like you don't need to be there's There's being humble. Then there's also being like to have the, let's call it like traditional resume background you had before this consulting resume, like the independent consult, like you have to effectively, unless you had some crazy, I don't know if you like cured cancer or something, but like the traditional path into like the, the business schools is like doing everything perfectly since you're like 14 or 13. Yeah. It's yeah. like the path. So I'm like, that's kind of how it goes. It's like, yeah, it's, the GPAs and the test scores and the organization and the type A and, and just like the obsessing over things that like most people think are stupid in terms of like organ, like, like and not a stoop. That's not, you know, I'm just saying like the hoops you have to jump through to go that far. And like the traditional ladder requires being a certain type of person where that answer makes sense from like the time you're effectively like 13 or 14. Something. Yeah. Um, I, something like that. But I also, I also think there's ways um, there's ways around it. Like I, I think about this concept a lot and I, I've talked about it with my wife quite a bit is, uh, I think it's really important to think of yourself as an, almost as an explorer, right. Of like, you know, where you are on the map and you want to know where you're going on the map. Now, both of those take a lot of self-awareness because you need to know who you are. You know what you're good at. You need to know where you are currently. And you need to know where you want to go. You need to know like what the perfect day looks like. You need to know what your goals truly, truly are. But once you have those two things, then the question becomes, what is the easiest, most straightforward, least path of least resistance to go between those two points? And uh, once you figure that out, it, it can get really, really, really easy. Um, for example, like I, uh, I went to Wharton. Uh, one of the, the, there's a lot of really easy ways to get into Wharton. If you know, that's your goal and you're trying to like hack your system, your, the system around to it. I took an easier path. I didn't take the easiest path, but there are some very 
easy ways to get in. If you're, if you know that's where you are and where you want to go is Wharton, like you can do it. Like what? Kyle's <laughs> <laughs> like, come on, I got time. Uh, um, so there's two different ways, um, like two different ways are coming to mind. It depends. Um, One's got to uh, be born rich. It's got to be. <laughs> no, no. Um, so there, there's two different paths. It depends on your gender, on which path is best and open for you. I'm um, a man. You're a man. Okay. So you're a man. If you want to go to Wharton, the best way to do that is to apply to the nursing school because um, the nursing school is over 90% female. Um, if you're a man, your acceptance rate is exceptionally high because they do want to have men in the program. The transfer acceptance rate from the nursing school to Wharton is exceptionally high. So if you're a man, the way you do it is you apply to the nursing school, you get in because you will, because they have a very high acceptance rate, and then you apply to transfer into Wharton, which also has a very high acceptance rate. If you're female and you want to get into Wharton, the best way to do it is to become a rower. Um, over 70% of high school female rowers end up getting recruited to college. That's a lot higher than the acceptance rate Dang. right off the bat um, for, for college. So like, there are ways, if you are convinced of like, I know where I am and I know where I want to go and if Wharton's where I want to go, like find the path of least resistance to go between those two areas. I think, uh, if we had our friend Joe Weeby on the call, he'd have some interesting words for that in terms of like, I mean, you're not saying that that's like metaphysically, metaphysically super the wrong word here, but like, that's like the, all things considered, right thing to do it's just like your point is like if you're hyper fixated on some outcome and you decided that like it's worth mm-hmm. it to do some activity you have no pleasure in or whatever or like take two semesters of classes that are like potentially worthless to you for that goal then yeah yeah it, it, I, I would agree with that uh we did one episode a couple of weeks ago with this woman kelly powell we published it very recently and she is into the private equity space like her book was about like how she grew her business her consulting business by consulting with private equity and basically just being like the tech operating partner when they made acquisitions. But she made Kyle and I add this question. She didn't make, she inspired us to add this question to like our general repertoire for interviews. Uh, what is the most impactful, interesting, random thought provoking, or does that comes to mind in terms of like a random like breakfast or coffee date slash appointment date, not in like with a, a woman or a romantic partner, but like, a just like, so it's like, let's meet for coffee, just like a kind of random and it ended up being like actually pretty significant or some takeaway from the conversation or relationship that ended up being like impactful from kind of like a serendipitous, like, yeah, let's just grab coffee. So you could have invited that person. And then it was, well, it was a breakfast meeting. That was the whole, was it breakfast specifically? The, it was breakfast. Okay. It was it all about breakfast. breakfast. It doesn't yeah. have to be because of the frame. Of if the, the constraints but... of breakfast makes it easier to answer, answer breakfast. And if it makes it more <laughs> difficult to answer, then forfeit the constraints. Yeah. Um, so one comes to mind, actually. It's a, uh, it was like a breakfast coffee type thing um, with uh, a classmate of mine back at Wharton. And she knew that we were both interested in the idea of entrepreneurship. And she had asked us if we could get coffee or whatever. And she uh, sat down and started asking me like what I wanted to do, what funds I was targeting to raise capital from, how I was going to like prevent dilution, and basically asking me how I was going to get ready for a venture-backed lifestyle. 
and what I was going to do to protect myself from venture capital firms and how I was going to live with the like terrible decade of growing something and blah, 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 venture capital, venture capital, venture capital. And then she asked me at the end of the conversation, like what I was thinking about doing from like a business idea perspective. I had a note on my phone and it was a never note of, of different businesses that I had in mind. And none of them would have required any venture capital. They were all very focused on the idea of like what's something that I can start very quickly and get very profitable very quickly. It's not going to be a billion dollar company. I'm not going to be on the cover of Forbes when I sell it. But it's something that's going to make me a lot of money while she's spending a decade plus struggling and dying in the venture capital world. And I remember this conversation because she thought I was an idiot, like straight up idiot for not wanting to go down this venture backed path. And I just remember sitting there and was like, we just spent an hour talking about how your life is going to suck for a decade trying to build a company and your odds of success are 0.000016%. And venture capitalists are going to fire you at every opportunity. How do we actually want to be doing that? Like, there's no, there's no interest in that. There's no excitement about doing that. Like, it's just not a good setup. Um, and that meeting in particular was one that really cemented for me the idea of um, there's a lot of different ways to do entrepreneurship, and it doesn't have to be the famous venture-backed path. It's starting something quick, profitable, easy can be a hell of a business. I think that's the motivating message to uh, to leave people with. I think your YouTube and your Twitter are probably the best place for people to reach you and or continue to learn from you if this is interesting. There's going to be a, an onslaught of content over 2023 for whoever wants to watch Sean. <laughs> uh, so Sean, where should we send people who want to keep the conversation going, whether that's asynchronously just by watching your content or by shooting you a DM for the limited time, you're still able to actually handle that volume because uh, I know that's going to be... <laughs> yeah tough as time goes on yeah yeah that's yeah totally fair so twitter twitter and youtube would be the best places i'm uh we'll, we'll do my best to to get to every dm um you can also email me my email is sean at the odadgroup.com like uh, i've given it out before i'll keep doing it feel free to shoot me a note and uh, i'll do whatever i can to get back to you amazing well this has been an awesome conversation i have tons i need to apply from this uh for getting more <laughs> consulting work for my business and Kyle will, you know, pick the best neighborhood for him and his family. So this has been <laughs> sick. That wraps up this conversation with Sean O'Dowd. What a blast that was. I learned so much from speaking with him. Three takeaways from me, and then we'll be moving on. The first takeaway is the way that he writes his proposals on these freelancing platforms and the mindset specifically that goes into that. So he talks about a framing of, is this what you want or what the company wants? So you can start your proposal, hey, I'm the very best in the whole world at this, please hire me, versus already providing value in the proposal. Hey, from what it sounds like, you need help with this. My suggestion, if we're to have a conversation, would be to do this, this, and this. If that sounds like I understand your problems correctly, maybe we should have a conversation. There's a humongous difference in thinking from the other person's point of view. Second takeaway is Sean's willingness to differ from his peers. We spent a lot of this conversation talking about how everyone at Penn wanted to go into the traditional path of either VC-funded startups or major name consulting. And for whatever reason to Sean, that just wasn't appealing. And he was willing to do something different from his peers in that you know, so many people 
struggle to resist the social pressure to just conform. And clearly for Sean, not conforming made a huge positive impact for him. Third takeaway is, and final takeaway, how quick growth can be when you're doing something that people actually want. So we talk to Sean in this conversation about how he grew on Twitter. And basically it sounds like he didn't have that much of a strategy at the beginning. He was just sharing what had worked for him relative to this particular industry and this particular niche and his particular expertise. And it just started popping off immediately. People were saying he's the best, everyone's following him. And the lesson there is because of the power of the internet and how big it is and how the natural tendencies for things to go viral if they're resonating, he grew so quickly, really without trying that hard, simply because he was speaking to a real pain point and providing tons and tons of value. So if your content's not growing as quickly as you'd like, perhaps listen to the signal there that like the market in the sense of the audience or the attention market, the attention economy, as people say, is telling you that what you're saying just isn't yet that interesting or isn't that valuable. That's it for me from this conversation with Sean. Hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening. So you don't miss another one. Say hi to Sean on Twitter. Say hi to me and Kyle. We're out here. Love to talk about these things with different people. Yeah. If you're bored, go listen to another episode. Otherwise, we'll be back in roughly one week with a new one. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you later. Bye-bye.